0: Uh, my name is Bill Gorman, and I'm the campus pastor here at the Brookside Campus. And just want to welcome all of you here this morning. It's great to see each one of you, especially if this is your first time with us. We're just so glad that you came. I know uh, what a hard thing it can be to come to a new church for the first time. So thanks for uh, for joining us this morning, and we hope that you feel warmly welcomed here with us this morning. Um, before we open uh, God's Word together and really begin to explore this passage. Um, I'd love to just pause and ask uh, for prayer and just pray together and ask for God's help as we look at His Word. So um, I'm just going to ask for that from our Heavenly Father now. Father in Heaven, we are so thankful that You have um, given us the gift of Your Word. And I say that almost every week, and it's no less true um, each week that You have given us this gift of Your Word, um, that You have revealed Yourself to us, that we can know You through it. And so we ask this morning that You help us By the power of your spirit to understand it we know that apart from that um, we can't truly understand it and so we pray now for your help in jesus name amen well as we look at this passage this week um, i'm struck by how much is here and uh, i think one of the hardest things for us to do as people is really to understand ourselves rightly I mean, one of the hardest things for us is to really have a truly accurate view of ourselves. And we, we see ourselves through a distorted lens, and we take oftentimes both too much credit for our successes as well as for our failures. Um, we tell ourselves—what uh, we tell ourselves about um, who we are, whether we tell ourselves good things or bad things, um, just tend to be skewed. And we, we also—we tend to be blind to our, our greatest uh, flaws— Um, If you're married, your spouse will often help you see those. Um, We tend to be blind to our greatest flaws, but often we also tend to be blind to our greatest strengths as well. And and a while back, there was a video, uh, it actually ended up going viral on the internet, that um, I think powerfully captures this phenomenon of our distorted self-perception. And so take a look at it. It's powerful, isn't it? Um, How hard it is for us to really see who we truly are. I love that video because every time I watch it, I'm just reminded again and again of how difficult it really is uh, to see ourselves truly. Our identity, who we really are, answering that question of who am I is one of the most important questions that we can ask about ourselves. But really when we ask that question, who am I, we're not just looking for a description of who we are, but we're actually looking for an affirmation of who we are. That who we are is okay. We long to hear someone say to us, well done, that you are good, that you're good enough. What we're going to see this morning as we look at this passage in Romans chapter 3 is that only the gospel can tell us the truth about who we really are, that only the gospel can tell us the truth about who we really are. You see, it's only in the gospel that, that the lies that we tell ourselves can be combated, It's only in the gospel that we are able to be truly honest about who we are without becoming prideful or without collapsing in despair. It's only in the gospel that we can truly be honest about who we are without becoming prideful or without collapsing in despair. This passage is one of my favorite in in all of the Bible. Uh, Martin Luther, a reformer, called this the chief and the very central place of the epistle, this letter that Paul is writing, and also of the whole Bible. And this morning, as we look at Romans chapter 3, we see the lies that we believe, the truth that is our only hope, and what happens when we begin to believe the truth. So we're going to see the lies that we believe, the truth that is our only hope. And then we're going to take a couple minutes at the end and say, what would happen if we really believed that truth to the core of who we are? So first we see the lies that we believe. If you have a Bible, if you haven't already, turned there. I turn to Romans chapter uh, 3, verse 21. That's page 941 in the Pew Bibles. I'd love for you to follow along as we look at this together. And Paul writes in verse 27, 27, he, or 21, excuse me. he says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And as we step into the middle of Paul's letter to the church in Rome, remember if you were here with us last week, we looked at Paul who became, or Saul who became Paul. Now he's a leader in the church. He's writing letters to various churches. He's writing the church in Rome. And as we step into the middle of this letter that Paul is writing, we find that the Roman Christians are wrestling through an identity crisis of their own. And what we find is that the Jews and the Gentiles were coming together in one community for the first time, centered on Jesus Christ. But their mixture of religious and irreligious backgrounds were uh, began to confuse. They were wondering, what does it really take to be okay with God? What does it really take to be right with God? So the Gentiles are wrestling through: Do we have to obey the law, this law of the Jews, the ancient laws of Israel, to be good enough for God? And the Jews couldn't fathom being good enough for God without keeping the law, without upholding the law. And so key to this understanding this passage is this word in verse 21, the righteousness of God, this word righteousness, or also when you heard Oliver read through, there's also a word justice or justify came up a number of times. Actually, in in the original language, it's really the same root. Uh, Righteousness, justice, it's the same root word. It means to justify, just simply means to declare something righteous. So, what is righteousness? Well, scholars point out that in the Bible, righteousness denotes not so much an abstract idea of justice or virtue as it denotes a right standing and consequent right behavior within the community. So, righteousness has less to do with sort of this abstract ideal of virtue. or or holiness and more to do with right standing in a community and before god it has everything to do with right standing with relationship and righteousness is ultimately what gives you right standing before others and ultimately before god now different cultures at different times have talked about righteousness in different ways right so the jews used this language of righteousness and it had everything to do with keeping the covenant keeping the law But if you look at other cultures, this concept doesn't disappear. It's just used with different language, right? So if you look at ancient Norse culture, for instance, in in Norse culture, it's all about glory. It's all about gaining glory for yourself in battle and, and being resolute in the face of overwhelming odds to gain glory for yourself. That's what it took to be accepted, to be okay. It, for us in, in modern Western people, we, we have done talk a lot about righteousness, but we haven't escaped that concept. We've just psychologized it, right? So we use the language of psychology to talk about being right with, with ourselves and with one another. So we talk about, about self-image or self-esteem. But all of these things, whether it's uh, this righteousness that comes from keeping the law or self-esteem or, or glory, all of them have to do with being accepted, with measuring up, With gaining approval. And it's here that we see two common lies that find their way into our hearts around this. And the first lie is that I'm good enough, that I can be good enough on my own. And it's subtle how this lie comes into our hearts. It's subtle how we come to that conclusion. And, and the first way that it comes in is we often we engage in selective comparison in order to convince ourselves that we aren't the worst person in the world. So, for instance, we can look at ourselves, whether well, we say this explicitly or just kind of uh, think through this, but we say, well, I'm, I'm not as bad as whoever the worst person of the day is, whether that's Hitler, or Osama bin Laden, whoever else. You know, I'm not as bad as them, so clearly I'm not the worst person in the world. But most people pass that test, right? I mean, I think most of us here are going to pass that bar, but we also, we take it kind of a step further, right? And we think, well, I'm not as bad as Jenna in accounting. I can't believe how manipulative she is. Or right, or, or, or the, you know, your class at school, your kid in your biology class, I can't believe Brett, man, he's got, he's with a different girl every weekend. I'm, at least I'm not like that, right? So we, we have the selective comparison. We pick the person who is just a little bit worse than us, so we can say, well, I'm not that bad. And we're so skilled at showing that we aren't the worst and then thinking somehow that since we aren't the worst, then, then we must be good enough. But another way this happens for us is we also go a step further and create kind of our own personalized standards. All of us have them, right? We create this own set of standards that if we are living up to them, then we we feel all right. Um, So, you know, if if I stick to this uh, deadline or if I meet this timeline, um, if I have the approval of my parents or my boss, um, if I just treat people the way that they want to be treated, then I'm doing okay, the, the trouble with our own personalized standard is, though, even when we set the standard for ourselves, we still don't end up meeting it, right? <laughs> uh, if you imagine if you were to put a little you know, a recorder around your neck and it was recording everything you said for an entire day, would you even meet the standard that you set for yourself of treating others the way you want to be treated? I, I know I don't, wouldn't want to listen to that recording uh, after an entire day. Now, now, maybe some of you have kind of zoned out a little bit here because you think that this isn't me. Uh, that's, That's not my struggle. But here's a couple of diagnostic questions just to ask yourself to find out whether or not you believe this lie. The first is, are you ruled by fear? Are you ruled by fear? You see, when you must meet a certain standard to feel good about yourself, even if the standard is low, then every task Every relationship becomes a battle to answer the question, am I good enough or not? Any challenge, whether it be a relationship, a new venture, can become paralyzing because if you fail, then you are no longer good enough. And so fear becomes characteristic of your life. So so are you ruled by fear? Secondly, are you an overbearing person? You see, if you have to meet certain standards to be good enough, then the things when things are going well, you can kind of tend to become obnoxious, right? Because you tend to get prideful. You think everything's going great. My life is, is together. Um, I'm, I've got it together. And, and people don't want to be around you when you're, when you're like that. But you can also be just as obnoxious when things are going badly. Because in those moments, you feel depressed and everyone around you feels overwhelmed because you're so down and, and they just get sucked into that with you. Because your whole value is found in, in how you're performing that day. Which actually leads us to the second lie that we tell ourselves. First lie is, I can be good enough on my own. The, the second lie is, I could never be accepted. That's the second lie we tell ourselves. I could never be accepted. We tell ourselves, I, I know I, could, I can't be good enough. As a matter of fact, it doesn't seem like I can ever do anything Right? I'm the worst person in the world. Who who could ever like me? Could God ever really love me? No one could ever really love me. I'm I'm so unworthy. And and this lie can actually be a little bit even more subtle, and and it's kind of harder to detect because somehow we often end up correlating it with humility. But it's actually anything but. Because it still focuses on what I can or can't do. And if you truly embrace this lie, you will end up depressed, you'll end up angry, end up isolated. You see, rather than humility, what this this lie leads to is self-pity. And self-pity is when when we get so self-absorbed that because we're not as good as we want to be or that we we can't live up to our standards and we just keep mulling this over and over in our minds and and we tell ourselves how terrible we are at our job or what a horrible husband or or parent we are. But at the end of the day, right, what are the pronouns there? It's all I, 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 me, me. I'm not good enough. I'm terrible. You see, in these moments, you're still the center of your world. (laughs) It's just that you feel like you and your world stink. That's, that's just the only the difference. But you're still at the center of it. You become so overwhelmed with shame and self-condemnation that you can't imagine someone would ever really accept you for you. For you, even God sometimes doesn't seem more powerful than the shame that weighs you down what happens oftentimes when we continue to spiral in this way is that we become isolated from community and this kind of spiral of self-condemnation just continues further. But you see, at the core of both of those lies, I'm good enough and, and I could never be accepted, both of them gain power from trying to live up to a certain law, whether that's God's law, my own law. When we set a standard for ourselves and we set that as what makes us okay, then we will inevitably end up believing one of those lies. You see, our way as human beings of getting righteousness, this right standing, always has to do with keeping a law, not necessarily God's law, but keeping a law, living up to a standard. But what we need to really be okay, to really be in right standing, is to have a righteousness that comes apart from the law, which brings us to the truth that is our only hope. The truth that is our only hope. Remember we said at the beginning that only the gospel can tell us the truth about who we really are. But what is the gospel? Well, this is what Paul is unpacking in the book of Romans, right from the beginning all the way through. And, and we see it right here. Look again at verse 21, and we'll keep reading a bit further this time. Paul writes, "...but now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ is for all who believe." And then he says in verse 23, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now let's pause right here. Paul says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And this is actually the case that Paul has been making in Romans since the very beginning. So from really from Romans chapter 1 verse 18 on, he has been making this case that that no one can meet God's standard. He says, no matter who you are, whether you're a Jew or a non-Jew, whether you're religious or irreligious, you can't be good enough on your own. Because the truth is that God is more holy than we can possibly comprehend. The truth is that God is more holy than we can possibly comprehend. You see, God takes sin so seriously because he doesn't just want that sort of life for us. He doesn't want us trapped in that he knows us better than we know ourselves. And, and throughout the first three chapters of Romans, as we said, Paul makes it clear that it doesn't matter what standard we hold ourselves to, God holds us to his perfect standard. And we have all fallen short, that we have missed the mark big time. And you see, not only can we not be good enough on our own, but even that goal of just being good enough is even short-sighted according to the gospel. You see, because God doesn't just want us to be good enough, but from the dawn of time, he created humanity in his image to be glorious, to be beautiful, to be stunning. We see this in Psalm chapter 8, verse 5, and God says he made humanity a little lower than the heavenly beings, and he crowned us with glory and honor. It's not just about being good enough. God sent us that we would be glorious, that we would be beautiful. And so when we think that, that we can be good enough on our own, not as the only... not Possible, but we miss how far we've truly fallen. We've not fallen from a kind of a, a good to a sort of bad. We've fallen from glorious to dead. So don't believe the lie that if you do enough good and right things, that you'll be good enough on your own. Hear God's standard that says, "This is who you really are, and you have fallen short. Don't cheapen it. Don't lessen it. But while it is true that God is more holy than we can possibly comprehend, it is also true that God is more faithful than we can possibly imagine. So we got to keep reading here. Look at verses 24 and 25. So he says, And all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, verse 24, and are justified by his grace through redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. You see, the key to understanding the gospel is that in God's way of doing things, his acceptance of us, his faithfulness towards us is not based on our performance. Let me say that again. The key to understanding the gospel is that God's way of doing things is his acceptance of us His faithfulness towards us is not based on our performance. It couldn't be. We're far too fickle. We're far too fallen. Rather, we find ourselves in the book of Romans. We find ourselves in the imagery of a courtroom. And, And Paul is making a legal case here. And he's saying, God is the presiding judge. And only his opinion matters. He is the holy and just judge. And Paul says we find ourselves there with our knees knocking, standing before him, with all of the weight of our sin, all of our crimes against one another and against him as God. And as God goes through the litany of our crimes, and it seems like it takes a very long time, We, as we've broken God's law, we've fallen short of his standards. And in one sense, our, our case is hopeless. We have nothing to say in our defense. We can't blame our family. We can't blame our job. We can't, there's, there's nothing that we can do to blame anymore. And then we hear verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law. But how can God do this? How can things be made part, right apart from the law? Well, that's what we see in these 24 and 25. It's through his son Jesus when he takes our guilty verdict upon himself and the punishment with it, therefore satisfying the just wrath of God by his own death. And that is the propitiation that, that talks about in verse 25. The satisfying, that word means satisfying the just wrath of God. So through trusting that Jesus' death was sufficient to pay our penalty, we were not only able to be pardoned, but to be declared glorious once again. We're declared right with God. We are, as verse 24 puts it, justified apart from anything whatsoever that we can do but by his grace as a gift through what Jesus did. And you see, we no longer then find our identity in our successes or failures, or even in the declarations of family or friends, but we find our truest selves in what Jesus has done for us and who God says that we are now, and he says that we are righteous. He says, you have right standing with me because of what Jesus has done. And in being declared right We are released from the prison of self-righteousness and self-condemnation. We tend to just go back and forth between those two poles of either being prideful or being despairing. But when we hear the word of God that says, you are justified, you are right, we're released from that prison. You see, no other religion takes sin so seriously and grace so seriously at the same time. Only in Christianity do we find that the trial is over, that we are released. The glory of this reality is summarized in verse 26, which is actually one of my absolute favorite verses in all of the Bible. Look at verse 26. Paul writes, It, all of this, was to show that God show his righteousness, God's righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus all of this was to show that his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the sinners. You see this verse, verse 26, that says God is just and the justifier of sinners, this verse resolves the great tension that we felt in all the story of the Bible up until this point. And if you've been with us this whole year, you know, we've been reading through this Bible and following through the story through Open Here, which is just our, our commitment to, to develop this pattern of reading the Bible on a regular basis. And all throughout the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, God is constantly saying this. He says, I can't bless a disobedient people. I'm a just judge. I can't ignore guilt, right? God is constantly saying this. Old and New Testament, every page of the Bible, this is what he's saying. We know that even a a human judge who ignored justice would would be disbarred, right? God is saying, "I, I can't bless a disobedient people. I'm a just judge. I can't ignore guilt, but also throughout the Bible, both Old and New Testaments on every page, God is also constantly saying, I will never leave you. I'll never give up on you. I'll always accept you. I will never forsake you. So how do we resolve this tension? How can these both be true? How, how can God be faithful to his people, but then what about his holiness? How can, how can he uphold his, his, his holiness and be a just judge, but then what about his faithfulness? And it comes down to the question, is, is God's acceptance of you conditional or unconditional? Is his acceptance of you conditional? You have to be good in order to be accepted, or is it unconditional, that no matter what you do, he'll always accept you? And the answer is yes. Yes to both. You see, Jesus fulfilled the conditions of the law so that he could accept us unconditionally. Jesus fulfilled the conditions of the law so that we could be accepted unconditionally. Therefore, God can be just and the justifier of sinners. And when this truth comes alive in you, when you let the reality of the gospel define who you are, you will be transformed in ways that you never imagined. So what happens when you begin to believe this through and through? When the gospel really begins to shape every aspect of who you are? I mean, there's, there's a thousand different ways, but I just want to point out three as we kind of come to the close of our time here this morning. First, when this message of the gospel begins to come alive, not just in your head, but goes deep into your heart and begins to shape every part of who you are, the first thing that happens is you begin to develop an, a humble confidence You begin to develop a humble confidence. I I love how Pastor Tim Keller uh, explains this. He uses this great phrase. He says, the gospel humbles us to the dirt, but it affirms us to the stars. The gospel humbles us to the dirt and affirms us to the stars. What does he mean by that? He says, look, the gospel, it, it, it humbles you to the dirt because the gospel says, look, you were so bad off that it took the God of the universe coming from heaven to earth and dying on a cross to save you. I mean, when you realize that's how bad off you are, there's, there's no pride there. I mean, it humbles you to the dirt. But it doesn't leave you there because also the, the gospel simultaneously says that Jesus was glad to do it. He loved you so much, he was delighted to do it. He loved you so much, he was glad to come and rescue you. And so you're affirmed to the stars. You're humbled to the dirt, but you're affirmed to the stars. He, so in any given moment, when we start to become prideful, if we're in the gospel, we remember, well, we, I can't be prideful. I was so bad off, it took God dying on the cross to save me. But in those moments when we start despairing, I, I, how terrible of a person I am. I'm so, how could God ever accept me? The gospel reminds us, but He was glad to do it. He loves you so much, it affirms you to the stars. And this is actually exactly what Paul says. Uh, if you just keep reading a little further in the passage in verse 27 and 28, he says, Then what has become of our boasting? He says, It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Paul says you can't boast or despair because everything you have is a gift by grace alone through faith alone. And this kind of confident, joyful humility that comes from the gospel is so deeply attractive. I mean, if you've ever been around someone who really has that kind of humility, they're some of the best people to be with. Actually, I love how C.S. Lewis uh, describes this. Um, he writes about humility. He says, "Do you not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays?" He will not be the sort of greasy, swarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he's nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you dislike him, it will be only because you feel a little envious of everyone, anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. And then this is what Lewis drives home. He says, he will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. If you meet someone who's truly humble, they will not be thinking about humility. They will not be thinking about themselves at all. That's what real humility is. It's not thinking less of ourselves. It's just thinking about ourselves less. The gospel generates within us this humble confidence that frees us from thinking of ourselves all the time. It makes us people who can take criticism with grace. It makes us incredibly patient, attractive, joyful people. Second, when we believe this truth, when we believe the gospel, we find that, that we are welcomed into a community that is radically inclusive because everyone is on equal footing in the gospel, regardless of your background, right? Whether you're religious or religious, old or young, whether you're a minority culture or majority culture, whether, you're, whether you are rich or whether you're just scraping by. Because Christians welcome all kinds of people in their midst because the defining characteristic of Christians is that they are justified by faith and nothing else. None of that other stuff gives you any advantage before God. And so Christians can welcome all kinds of people. And this is Paul's point in verse 29 and 30. He says, Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one. Who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Paul's point here is God is one. He's the one God over everyone, both Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, minority, majority. Whether you it doesn't your ethnicity, your wealth, your religious background, it doesn't matter because in Christianity there's only one way of justification, it's by faith. So we become a radically inclusive community. So finally, we believe this truth, not only are we marked by a humble confidence, by a radical inclusivity, finally we're we're also marked by joyful obedience. You see, out of gratitude and joy, we become passionate about ba- obeying and pleasing God. But, but here's the thing. When, when we obey God out of motivation of, of delight in the gospel, we don't become arrogant when we're succeeding. Religious people will always begin to become prideful and arrogant when they're obeying, but then they will just collapse when they feel like they're not obeying. But in, in the gospel... There's this joyful obedience. We desire to be like God. We want to be like him. We want to look and, and be more and like him all the time. But we don't become prideful when we're succeeding. We also don't become despairing when we fail. Because we know that there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. When we're doing well, we know that apart from God's grace, we are doomed. And when we despair we, and fail, we know that oh, there's no condemnation in Jesus. So either way, it's the same. Both our successes and our failures further fuel our desire to become more and more like the one who loved us. And gave himself for us. Jesus fulfilled the conditions of the law. So that he could accept us unconditionally. And he gives us the righteousness that comes not from the law. But through faith in him. That is the truth that we celebrate every week in communion. We celebrate communion here at Brookside each week as a tangible reminder of that good news that Jesus has fulfilled the conditions of the law so that he could accept us, accept us unconditionally. In the gospel, the, in, in communion, the gospel is proclaimed to our senses. We get to see and taste and touch the truth that Jesus has taken our guilt on himself that he received the brokenness that belonged to us, that he was pierced for our transgressions, and then he has given us his righteousness in exchange. And you don't have to be a member of Christ's community, a participating community, and if you're a follower of Jesus, who recognizes that my only hope for this kind of righteousness is a righteousness that comes apart from the law, that you are welcome at the table. Of course, you would rather, uh, you're always welcome to remain in your seat and use this time to pray and reflect. As Oliver mentioned earlier, we do have prayer uh, with uh, some folks in our congregation, pastors. If you want to receive prayer for something this morning, if you just meet us in the back in this corner here by the sound booth, um, we'd love to pray with you about anything that's on your heart, uh, your mind this morning weighing you down. And when we come in groups of, uh, to receive, can you just come in groups of four or five. And just take the, the bread, dip it in the juice, and then partake together as a group. There's four communion stations around the room. There's two here in the front, and then there's two in the back. Um. And when you receive communion, it works best typically if we kind of exit through these side aisles and then return to the center aisles. Especially if you're new, you've probably noticed that these pews are pretty narrow. Um, We are aware of that. So if you have to kind of crawl over someone or bump into someone a little bit as you're getting in and out of the pews, we're used to that. So don't worry about doing that um, as you get in and out. Um, It's okay. And finally, just say, "Don't, don't rush, but take your time. Enjoy this moment. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, He took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he said to the disciples, Take, eat, this is my body. And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins the good news of the gospel. There's a new covenant in which Jesus' blood is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. He said, do this in remembrance of me. So come now to the Lord's table and taste and touch the good news of the gospel.